Hello, this is Slice of Life, where we take apart one's view and perspective on life. And for our second episode today, we have our guest, uh, Mitchell Landers. Uh, Mitchell is a student studying at University of Chicago. He's a candidate for a PhD in psychology. Welcome, Mitchell. Hi, nice to be here. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming here and your time. So um, how is it like studying psychology in Chicago? It's, uh, it's cold, but uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot here. Um, a lot of cool people, a lot of interesting ideas, and uh, offers to do podcasts, apparently. <laughs> well, you have lucky, you're lucky enough to meet me then. So uh, <laughs> where, are you, where are you originally from? from I'm originally from Santa Barbara, so, okay. born and raised, sunny Santa Barbara, California. It's about an hour and a half uh, north of L.A. for people who don't know. But I, uh, in my experience, most people have heard of it, which mm-hmm. I find kind of strange because it's, it's a bit small. But born and raised there, went to UC Berkeley as an undergrad, studied philosophy, um, found psychology a few years later, um, and here I am getting a PhD. Cool, cool. So um, you're enjoying your summer here now? The weather's pretty good, you know, as o- as almost as good as California, right? No, not not almost as good. Not even close. It's too hot here, and, and the the weather is too variable. It changes. Is variable the right word there? It's too, it changes too much, is what I'm trying to say. It's rainy, and then it's humid, and it's, yeah. I, it sounds like I'm complaining too much. Santa Barbara <laughs> made me spoiled. I apologize. Okay, now now let's uh, go to our questionnaires. First question in the Slice of Life podcast, we ask this question about the video to your future self. So let's say that you're going to have a massive amnesia tomorrow and you won't be able to remember like all the things that happened in your past. Your memories and experiences will be gone, but then you'll still know how to get by, you know, ride your bike or how to survive, right? And you only, you know this fact and you only have a minute of like a minute or so of your, your video recording to send it to the future self. And if you were recording this video, and think of me, think of think of me as you, and you're, you're saying you're speaking to your future self. What would you say? That's a tough question. I think what I would say is that you should make a plan about how the rest of your life is going to go, and that that plan should start with one figuring out who was closest to you in your life previously, explaining to them what happened to you and figuring out how you should move forward. But in, in any case, you should figure out who those people are, how they can help you, and try to reestablish the relationships that you have forgotten about. That would be the first thing. The second thing I would say is that you should try to learn as much as you possibly can because presumably you've forgotten all of the things you used to know and that you used to uh, think were important. Mm -hmm. So I suppose one way of doing that is to get on the internet or something and, and figure out what kinds of information people throughout history have thought were important. In fact, I would recommend that you figure out what the what the most important things are and read make a list of those things and read them. Mm-hmm. So uh, ancient works, classics, things like that. Figure out 
the things that have been thought of before that are the most famous and well thought of things, the best ideas that humanity has ever had, or at least the most popular, and relearn them or learn them for the first time if you didn't know them before. Um, okay. So um, let's talk about the second part, like learning about stuff, right? So you're not going to tell yourself like what to do. You're, you're, you're not going to tell your plan that you have now to that future self, like the, the person who lost the memory. You're just going to just tell him to figure it out. That's what you're going to say. Right, yeah, because so the reason why I wouldn't give the kind of stringent advice about how to be, let's say, or how to act is that I presumably already know those things implicitly. So even though you've stipulated that I've forgotten all these things, I tend to think that personality and all these other behavioral traits that we tend to think of as somehow given to us by our experiences mm -hmm. are, in my view, more rigid. They're not necessarily unchangeable, but they are less changeable than people generally think. And so I think given that, I think I would still roughly be the same kind of person and that I wouldn't need the kind of explicit instructions that, for example, parents sometimes think they need to, to tell their children not to touch or steal or this, this, this sort of thing. I think I, those, those sorts of behaviors and patterns and what you might just encapsulate as personality would still be there. I just would have forgotten all the things that happened to me up to this point. So um, you still think that if you lost your memory, you will like still continue studying psychology or still continue doing what you're doing right now eventually? Or um, I mean, it's possible that I might change my mind. And if so, that would be up to me. I wouldn't have a huge problem with it being the kind of person that I am right now. It's not as if I would insist to my future self who's forgotten everything that I, you must study this and that but I would certainly emphasize and I would expect for my uh, for my future self among the things that I will hope to relearn mm -hmm. are some of the things that I currently find most fascinating so for example uh, one of the reasons that I've gotten into the field that I've gotten into psychology is my fascination with evolution and natural selection and how that process informs our psychology. And so I think certainly that would be an idea that I would hope my future self would relearn. And presumably I would expect myself to be as fascinated by it as I currently am. And so it's possible that my future self, despite having lost all of my memories, would relearn my love and fascination <laughs> with my current field of study and, and end up choosing it anyway. But it's possible that despite what I expect to be uh, my future fascination with my current fascination, 
that I would choose something else, and I would be entirely fine with that. So, like, for example, you're not going to say, like, if you, let's say you've always had a dream to go on, like, a trip to, I don't know, like, somewhere, like, maybe Antarctica or something like that. You have some sort of ambition. If you don't, even if you don't tell the future self about that ambition, you think the person, the, the Mitchell that lost the memory would still, um, you know, go along with that, like, by himself. That's more plausible than you think? I think it's more plausible than most people would expect, but that's that's by virtue of the fact that I think it's more likely that my future self would fall end up falling into the same the same sorts of behavioral patterns that I currently express or engage in. Um, and so, I, like, I would find it it's not impossible that I would choose something else. In fact, it's probably, there are like so many things that someone could choose to do or be, but I think it's, it's a pretty decently sized probability that I would end up choosing this path. And so meaning the same path that I'm currently on. And so if I, if I did in fact do that and end up where I am now, I would expect for my ambitions to align regardless of what my current ambitions are. What I mean by that is I wouldn't have to explicitly tell myself that you should be aiming for this or that, mm -hmm. but that I would expect for my future self, despite its lost memories, despite my having lost memories, uh, to, if not, certainly it would be more likely that I would end up where exactly where I am than some other random job or something like that. And, and you'd be happy with that? Like satisfied with that, like you don't you don't want to tell your future self to just go run off to have some like I don't know like a world trip or whatever like. No, I don't think so. I mean, I it's, uh, I think the answer to that question has more to do with how satisfied I am currently with okay. my right. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah no I I would say that I'm pretty satisfied, um, and so. Um, you never know how things will end up. I'm still, it's still early days, but yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to nudge myself in a different direction. Although, um, to answer your earlier question about ambition, it's possible that I, even if I did end up on the same path, that some of my current ambitions that have nothing, let's say, to do with my career goals mm -hmm. might be different. Um, Although I would expect those to be like more not, likely than yeah, not, not very similar. far off. Right. I'm saying. I right. see. I see. And for the first part, you answered about like building social connections, like the relationships. So you also think that the people that you're closest to now will be the same, even if you have lost all the memories with them. You believe that you'll like get along and build this fruitful relationship even from the beginning? Well, so I think. We, the reason why I would tell my, my future self who's lost all my memories to seek out those people that you did have relationships with, the reason I would say that is that at least from their end, they still remember you and all the experiences they had with you and how, how much they, they value you. And so given that you'd be in this kind of terrible predicament where you don't remember anything, but other people around you might remember you, 
you need to figure out what the, you know what kind of person was I to these people and who hates me who loves me who's gonna help me uh, and so at least given that there are people who care about you from their end who still remember you it would help to to seek those people out and and get their support and their whatever information they have about you and your life people that you presumably can trust um, people who can help you um, and guide you uh, on your on whatever path you end up end up choosing for yourself so I think even if you with a with a kind of blank slate that you're imagining which mm-hmm. I don't really <laughs> think is real right <laughs> for reasons we can get into but yeah. but as much of a blank slate as is possible let's say uh, it might be the case that you find that some of the people that you've previously had strong relationships with are not as strong going forward or people that you didn't know as well or at all you start developing into stronger relationships i just think from a very first step basis that it makes sense to at least find the people who already care about you and at least that would be like a head start and you would uh, be able to move move forward from there i see and um i'm assuming these people are like your family members yeah i I think most often for most people and i think for myself yeah that would be my family but also some of my friends um but yeah that's 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 what i would choose for sure so basically this question is kind of void to you because like you even if you lose memory you still want yourself to be you know you, you still believe that nothing's gonna change I wouldn't say nothing. I just think that a lot of who we who we are or who we end up being is something for which I think genes have a lot to do with this. Mm-hmm. And that's not it's not necessarily deterministic what I'm saying, but it is probabilistic, which is to say like I think that differences between people are in many cases due to differences in their genes. I think those genes end up probabilistically making us more likely to be a certain way, to mm-hmm. do a certain thing. Mm-hmm. And for those reasons, I think I think my future self, despite having lost all of my memories, that I would still have those same propensities to behave and act as I did before I lost them. And so I'm not saying that everything would turn out the same, but I am saying that in all likelihood, I would be mostly the same person. And the external events, like experiences, or your previous like narratives that you have about your life would have lesser effect than the impact of the genes, like the genetic effect. Yeah, I think... To being who you are, right? Right. I think, in general, people overestimate the impact of their their family environment, um, their their environmental experiences. That's not to say that those things don't matter. Um, I think they sometimes do. I just think rarely do they matter as much as the genetic component for determining the kind of person that we are and the kinds of behaviors that we that we end up engaging in. Um, I mean, I know, for example, the the research from behavior genetics is pretty clear on this, that 
that most of the things that uh, most of the things that people think of as environmental don't end up mattering for what what actually creates differences between people so like kind of sidetracking so you do you believe that there are like some people like who are more prone to be like genetically prone to be like less satisfied or less happy or on the other hand there's some other people who are more happy or who are more content with what they have so those are already genetically decided right to some extent yeah i think there are probably differences between people caused by differences in their genes that make people so like i would i would i would phrase it probabilistically not mm-hmm. deterministically mm-hmm. again which is to say that some differences in some genes probably each of which each gene i mean matters a little bit let's say in making someone more likely to be satisfied versus anxious or depressed um yeah i think that's that's almost certainly true so it kind of depends on luck then if you want to live a happy life and <laughs> people who have um more genetically who are more genetically prone to like feeling bad let's say they have harder way to go than people who are genetically prone to feeling good yeah if you want to if you want to put it that way i think uh that's probably mostly true i think i see i see uh but i mean you can go even further than that if you want which is to say uh most of the thing most of the things that create differences between people i think are are genetically driven and so uh what i mean by that is like due to inherited genetic differences mm-hmm. between people and so for example like how charming someone is right how, which probably affects all kinds of things right socially how well they get along with other people mm-hmm. um or like even in the you know in the job market probably helps that people get hired versus other people so you can say well this person wasn't hired because he didn't do as well in the interview as compared to this other person but maybe the reason why he didn't do as well in the interview compared to this other person is that there are differences in their genes that make this person just a little bit more likely to interface positively with other people socially and so the interviewer liked this person more and so hired him as opposed to you and so what is that if not luck as well so i think a lot of this is luck um if by luck you mean you can't control what kind of genes what kind of genes that you inherit right i see well um anyway so let's uh, move on to the second question now then uh the second question on slice of life life right now is if you had a chance to have a dinner with a person who's alive right now like the very next day and if you could only select one person who would you select and why hmm that's a yeah that's another interesting question i think so if i had to pick anyone at the moment i would pick uh elon musk yeah and uh the reason is kind of strange um or i should say it's it's kind of obvious on the surface but strange maybe for like underlying reasons that aren't so obvious the the obvious part of it is that he's obviously a, a billionaire tech entrepreneur who's who seems just super interesting and has all these companies that uh he's either started or i presume is invested in uh he's he's interested in you know the future and futuristic type things 
He builds all these cool cars. So those are, I think, the, the obvious reasons. The, the not-so-obvious reason, I guess, is that my reading of him is that he, whether he knows it or not, he is one of the only and certainly the richest and, and most powerful person in the world who seems, that I know of anyway, who's in, who seems engaged in solving this problem of existential risk, or at least addressing it to some extent. And uh, I guess I, sh I should probably unpack what I, what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. So by existential risk, um, what I mean is threats that are global um, in scope and that affect uh, all of humanity and that risk total, the total destruction of life. So, for example, uh, the Holocaust, World War II, that would not be an existential risk because it was not global in scope. It just affected uh, the Jews in Germany and other minority groups. Um, so it was catastrophic on the scale of, you know, life or death for those people, but it wasn't existential by this definition because it didn't affect everybody. And so I think what Elon Musk seems to be devoted to, at least according to my reading of his, his interests and actions, is minimizing the kinds of future problems that humanity will face or could face by, by virtue of increasing technology that potentially could wipe us all out on a global scale. Um, and so for those reasons, I would be interested in asking about that. Does he think about things in those terms? You know, because one of his main interests, for example, is like getting humanity to Mars, right? And he's just, when in interviews, he said things like, I'm just fascinated by, you know, li having humans live on other planets, right? Which is fine as far as it goes, and that's a, that's a great answer to that question. But I would just wonder if, like, well, why is he fascinated by that? Is what fascinated, like, is he driven by this, um, is he aware of this existential risk problem? And is that what, what's in part driving him this way? Is it like an unconscious motivation or, or what's going on? Certainly, he seems like he's devoted to to minimizing it with his companies, devoted mm -hmm. to, like I said, space exploration, as well as uh, he has a company, I forget the name of it, that's devoted towards minimizing the risk of AI uh, problems. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to ask him about the, those things. I'd like to get his, his view of them, and I'd like to see if I couldn't uh, convince him if he if he's not already convinced that this is a huge problem and that as someone who's already devoted towards solving them whether he realizes it or not he could be he could do even more he's in a position to do even more so um let's retrace our steps a little back and talk more about this um idea of ex existential risk right this is different it's completely different from ex existentialism right right right, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. so this existence existential risk is basically um doing everything that we can do to prevent our um, human species, like, so do, do, doing everything that we can do to prevent the extinction of human species. Right, right, yeah. So I guess 
So to back up for a second, I think it's important to point out that this existential risk idea exists within a framework of utilitarianism, right? So this idea that what we what we ought to be doing ethically mm -hmm. is whatever does the most good. Um, that's what is the ethical thing to do. And and good, that word is is kind of vague and it's it's cashed out in, in a bunch of different ways and people argue over what that means. Some people, you know, say it's this thing called utility or it's it's human happiness or or uh, minimizing pain or, or people disagree but mm -hmm. uh, within this framework whatever we take good to mean if we're trying to maximize the good and minimize the bad and doing that is to do the ethical thing then what that means is that um, sometimes the doing the most good will seem to be doing bad right it might be in intuitively something is bad or feels bad to us, but is actually something that does the most good. Um, and I think that's, that's difficult for a lot of people to wrap their heads around because we're not the kinds of creatures that evolve to, uh, to understand that, for example, uh, gravity is the bending of space-time. We're, we're evolved to think that gravity is things fall, t things fall down, right? And so I think similarly we're evolved to think that like, uh, a policy that gives people money, for example, does good, but it might, you know, you run some fancy math models and it turns out it hurts people and that just doesn't compute. I'm not even saying that that's the case, but I'm just, for example. Um, and so I think that has led people towards, there's this movement called effective altruism, which is devoted towards, within this utilitarian structure, figuring out ways of maximizing the good, doing the most good, improving people's welfare, the most, with the most cost-efficient um, actions. Uh, so you might have heard something along the lines of like, which charities should I donate to, right? If I'm donating to charity, I want to make sure I'm maximizing the good that my money is doing. Um, and so it might be, for example, that, that some charities you could donate to just don't do as good a job as other charities in taking that money and facilitating good outcomes for the people that it's designed, presumably, to help. So... That would be one example of how this kind of effective altruism movement has influenced uh, how people think about how to behave well in the world. And so I think within that effective altruism framework, which is itself a framework within utilitarianism, um, people have made the case, especially recently, that in fact, the most good we can do is minimizing the risk of complete and total destruction, right? Because uh, you can you can save, um, you know, a thousand or a million people today, um, but if humanity is wiped out because of some, you know, AI catastrophe, uh, then not only are all humans wiped out now, but all future humans as well, all the future humans that will have uh, goals, motivations, loved ones, um, dreams that will be snuffed out, prevented from ever existing um, if we don't act in ways now that minimize the risk of their being snuffed out. So, um, but to not sound too selfish, I mean, 
but these future generations of people that we're talking about, they're they're not here right now, right? And right. they're they're only there will be only they will only be if we live through a successful lives, I guess, as a human being of the present days. So why should we sacrifice ourselves right now for like some random human being that might be or that might not be in the future generation for like you know in like how many years ahead like yeah so i certainly agree that we're we're also to go back to my intuitive physics example with gravity i also think we're 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 obviously we're not the kind of creatures who evolved to care about people who live 50 generations from now yeah. right we evolved to think to compute actions that would be effective in our environments for us. Well, I mean, I should I should say that's not even the case. We evolved to compute actions that would be beneficial in past environments because evolution works really slowly. But uh, at least we're interpreting our environments as those environments. And so we're oftentimes unconsciously acting in ways that um, the system that, that the systems that are in place that cause us to act the way we do um, quote unquote, think are effective in our modern environments, even if they're wrong. But the point, the point being that uh, we are selfish. We do. We are designed to to to, to spread our own genes and to um, to act strategically. And so we don't. We aren't designed to think about really the future. Um, even you know. Some of us not even our own future. <laughs> I can speak from experience on that. But uh, I think to, to, to your, your question about why should we care about these future people. So even if we were, let's say that we agreed that they didn't matter at all, we're still talking about something that, that affects everyone now. We're still talking about the risk of all of us dying out at once. Um, or if not at once, then at least... Um, all of us dying out eventually so that there are no future people. Um, and so from a purely selfish standpoint, it's still the case that we should care about these things and, and care about them a lot. But I would actually argue that from an, from a, an objective or as an objective, as objective a standard as we can muster, that future people do matter. Um, and it just because we don't feel like they do doesn't mean they don't I guess and uh, that from a purely objective standard I would argue they matter as much as we do and it just so happens that we are we are existing in a time in which they don't but you know if you think about it there were people 200 years ago who if they were having these conversations let's say we had some microscope that allowed us to to peer 200 years in the past and we overheard two people recording a, uh, a journal entry, okay. uh, not a podcast. Right? Okay. <laughs> Where is he going with this? <laughs> recording a journal entry about, you know, the threat of existential risk and what we should do, right? I think we would certainly feel like they should, these people living 200 years in the past that we're observing with our fancy scientific microscope, they should certainly act in ways that prevent the risk of our not existing, Right. If we, we can have a vote, want them. yeah, yeah. If I we mean, had a vote, of course, yeah. of course. And so I think the same would be true of future people. That if they and and if there is some future technology, right, and they're peering in on us, I think they would feel the same way. So I think if you, 
if you compute, like if you think about it in that context, it starts to make less and less sense why we should matter so much more than all these people who, if it isn't for our quote-unquote selfishness, would exist, will exist, um, the same way that we do. And so I would get, like, I, I personally think they have, you know, they should be granted as much, it's hard for me to ar- to see the argument for why they shouldn't have as much value as we do. But I think even if you, even if you want to discount their value, even if you want to say that, look, maybe they have some value, but it's not, it's certainly not as much as the value of the people living in the present times. Okay, I can, I can kind of see that. But if even then, we're still talking like about an infinite, an infinite value, right? Because yes. discounting each one of their lives as say, I don't know, one one hundredth of value of one of our lives, then one one hundredth times an infinite number of lives, right? Still because infinite. Is still infinite. Yeah, because we're talking about their lives, but their children's lives and their children's children's lives. In the infinite horizon. Right, exactly. But um, so what does this movement like try to do? Actually, can thinking about it, can like individuals like such as ourselves try to do anything about this? Because like, for example, like something that could wipe out like the whole planet might be some like natural disasters, like something that wiped out dinosaurs like ages ago or like, let's say uh, maybe very, very powerful person with like uh, nuclear warheads. Or something like that right so it's kind of out of our control most of the time though right so how what does the the movement suggest like each of us as individuals do to um, enhance I mean no mitigate this existential risk right well I think so that's a that's a good question it's so within effective altruism right I mentioned that Within utilitarianism, there's this thing, there's this movement called effective, the effective altruism movement, which aims to do the most good, minimize the bad, right? Even in ways that we find counterintuitive. And I mentioned that within this effective altruism movement, there is kind of a sub movement about that, you know, what the effect, arguing that what the effective altruism movement should be focused on is this this existential risk phenomenon. So if you're asking what can everyday people do um, to minimize this existential risk? That's not as uh, the answer is not as obvious because, mm-hmm. as you say, uh, the the kinds of things that prevent that present as those kinds of existential risks are the kinds of things that each person on an individual basis has less effect on. However, there probably are certain things that people could do. Um, so, uh, I think like the biggest thing that people can do at this point is just be aware of what existential risk is and what uh, what kinds of risks are you know existential risks so AI risks uh, you know nuclear risks um, bioweapons so genetic engineering um, bioweapons these are things that are on the horizon but and we're some some would argue we're not there yet it'll be 50 years it'll be 20 years some people think that we're already almost there but Usually when these uh, technological um, advancements happen, there's a, there's a stability period where there's a huge risk over 
you know, who, who has control over these things. So, so take nuclear weapons, right? Yeah. With nuclear weapons, there was a period over which, and some would argue, like, it's still the case, I think, over who has the nuclear weapons, um, you know, what's going to happen, who's going to fire them at whom, if, if at all, right? With nuclear weapons, um, there's, a, there's a, a certain kind of resource, namely enriched uranium, yeah. Um, that it's really difficult to to come by. I mean, I'm not saying there's no risk of, of enriched uranium falling into dangerous hands. Some would argue that's already the case. Mm-hmm. But at least it's something that's more easily trackable, whereas these things like that, that, that involve smaller technologies or technologies that once you have the information, anyone can kind of himself or in a lab concoct the kind of, of dangerous weapons that we're talking about, that's less easily trackable. And until there is, there's certainly that like, there's probably going, not certainly, but there's probably going to be a period around which, around which time these technologies are emerging, where people aren't sure how they're, like how these things are going to shake out, how these things are going to be tracked. Um, And for the, for, because of that, uh, there will be huge risk about what what the effects will be, what the consequences will be, um, and we have to be aware of that. We have to, whether that's forming, you know, political action committees to to discuss these things on the horizon, to figure out with accuracy and not alarmism what what's the likelihood of these things coming about and when, and if you know make sure other people are aware of these things and maybe pressure politicians and and business leaders to to address them uh, i think that would be one way to move forward individually and, on existential risk yeah and pass those ideas down uh, down to our generations as well like the, the children who are growing up too i guess yeah i think I so that's really important right well. I, i think for example one way of doing that would be This is going to sound fiendish a bit and a bit dark, but I mean, in in television and movies, in the culture, right? These ideas should seep in. I mean, so it sounds like I'm saying we should propagandize our children. <laughs> that's what I was saying. But 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 I mean, to some extent, we kind of do that already, right? We try to teach them lessons, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the children's stories um, about you know how to behave nicely or whatever. And I, so I'm not saying that we have to you know force children to you know force it down their throats, the existential risk. But, but I just mean, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have, a, you know, some movies out there that deal with these issues. And there are some that already do, I would say. But um, more often, I would, I would like to see, I'd like to see more kinds of, you know, things in the culture that address this this big issue that I think Elon Musk understands, by the way, which is why I want him to, I want him to come to dinner. So you believe genes determine like most of our behaviors and our lives and according to most um not most but according to some um biologists or let's say evolutional biologists they argue that like we're programmed to act selfishly right but these kind of um altruistic actions do they can we perform like the altruism that we require In order for in order for us to mitigate the existence existential risks, so yes is the the simple answer. I think we can. So 
maybe not everybody or I, I guess what i would say is like what which i think is just generally obvious you know obviously true which is that there is definitely within a population there will be some people who care a lot about different things right some people there will be just you know there will be some people who care a lot about existential risk and some people who don't and my guess is that just if you did a simple analysis of you know the kind of people who care versus the kind of people who don't mm -hmm. then there would be differences between those people's genes that you could reliably oh map. you believe that yeah i certainly do i think that there, there's basically that but that I want to clarify, that's not the same thing as saying that there are genes for believing in existential risk and genes for not believing, whatever. It's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying whatever the genes are doing, right, that maybe they're genes for making you curious or something. I don't know. But it's just as a byproduct. They also make you, right? So, like, there are probably no genes for height either, right? There are probably a bunch of genes that do a bunch of different things, but then they also make you slightly more likely to be, you know, taller. a centimeter taller or whatever. Um, and if you have enough of those things, you'll just be what we call tall or something, or however tall you'll end up being. Um, so, right. So I'm not saying that it's all just genetically determined. I'm saying these are all, it's all probability. And so I think uh, to the extent that there are differences between people's genes that create differences in their behaviors, um, you will get these kinds of uh, different viewpoints, like as a byproduct. But so to your question, um, what was your question again? <laughs> so can we can we be truly altruistic and can we adhere to this you know mitigation of existential risk as uh, selfish you know gene carriers? Right. So yeah. So I think we can because. Genes which are themselves selfish can create altruistic, quote-unquote, behaviors. So that would mean the, the feeling I get when I help a complete stranger, you know, some old lady crossing the street or something, I feel good about it, and that's for a reason. It's, it's true that the genes, let's say, that are, that are there, that are... The kinds of genes that you know code for the proteins that build the mechanisms that when interacting with this particular environmental input produce my quote-unquote altruistic behavior it's true that they're there for selfish reasons mm -hmm. which is to say they're there because the genes that behaved that way spread in the population so in some sense there was a benefit to the genes to act that way since we know that, and since we know that selfish genes produce altruistic, can, not always, but can produce altruistic behavior, now it's, it's just a question of, can we make people aware? Can we create an environment? Can we establish the right incentives so that people get the same kind of cue of this is an opportunity to, to do something good, to make a difference that are the genes that coded for these proteins and and mental mechanisms that produce our altruistic behavior capitalize on. So it's not I, I guess yes, I think it's possible. I think it's not an easy it's not an easy task. Um, and it, but it's a it's just a question of right, how can we nudge people? How can we give people the right cues that make this 
seem like it's the right thing to do, seem like it's in their interest. Well, I think the more and more I listen to you, maybe isn't it then the best you convinced Elon Musk to develop technology that can proliferate those kind of altruistic genes in human being and then we just pass them down to the future generation, isn't Well, that sounds sort of fascist, doesn't it? (laughs) I'm I'm trying to avoid all solutions that involve like hostile government takeovers or like deceptive gene editing programs that like make people act certain ways (laughs) and not others. Maybe maybe that was that sounds a bit. Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of possibilities we could discuss (laughs) if you want to go down the dark side. Like, (laughs) but those yeah, those would not be my preference. So you'll you'll tell Elon Musk to. Like, you know, ask him about the, the stuff that he's doing, whether it's related to mitigating existential risk. And what else would you say? Would you would you try to help him in some way or would you Yeah, I would I would give him an elevator pitch about this? Sure. I, I suppose I would start by asking him first what he's heard about it or what he knows about it or what like I said earlier, like what's motivating these different companies, which to me, and maybe this is my bias, but they seem as if they are targeted towards addressing this existential risk problem. And I don't think that that's just a coincidence. It might be. It might just be that's where his interests lie and there's no underlying reason why. But I doubt that very much. And I'd be curious to know, I'd be curious to hear from directly from him what's going on there. And if, if it's just a, you know, a subconscious thing, if it's just this is, I'm very interested in these topics, then I would, yeah, I would give him the elevator pitch about this, this concept and why I think it's ethically super important that we, of utmost importance, that we address it, which he's already addressing. And I just, mm-hmm. I would encourage him to address it further. And I would, you know, maybe give him a few ideas about other companies or ideas or ways of addressing some of these problems, non-invasive ways, non, <laughs> non-fascistic <laughs> ways, non-deceptive <laughs> ways of addressing uh, these potential huge problems for humanity. And you would also like to work for that cause too, if you know, yeah, if it's possible. Right. I think that would be. I would certainly be open to that. I would love to do that. Yeah, that's it's something that I'm very interested in. Um, and so, yeah, I'd have to see, you know, what opportunities there were. But that would be something I would. I would certainly be interested in. Cool. Right. So, um, since since we're already off on our time limit so i think we should uh cut it short for today and then uh we could we can go to the next questions on our next next episode sounds good right so uh thank you for your answers today uh mitchell and i hope you enjoyed it i did and let's meet again uh soon sounds good thank you thank you for listening to the second episode of slice of life i hope you enjoyed our conversation and took away with many thoughts I would appreciate any feedback or suggestion from our dear listeners, and I hope you have a meaningful day.